0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 10, and we're going to be in verse 1 together. And so we are continuing this week, in our verse-by-verse journey through the Psalms, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, the, the verses will be on the screen for you, uh, and if you don't have a Bible at all and you would like one, we have them for free, so you can just grab an usher after service uh, or someone on our hospitality team. They'd be happy to give you a Bible that's yours, a gift to you. We want everyone that wants to have a Bible to have one, so. uh, but we will have verses here as we read together if you don't have one with you. So regarding the book of Psalms, surveys consistently reveal that Psalms is the most read book of the Bible. So if people are asked, what what book do you read the most? Psalms consistently is the answer that is most given. It's also the book of the Bible that Jesus quotes most often. So it's curious in light of these facts that you don't find much verse by verse teaching through the Psalms. Uh, This might be because of the sheer length of this book, uh, and that's why... Our approach has been each year we're just taking it a piece at a time. We'll do five to ten chapters a year. My thought is if I preach roughly 30, 40 more years, I'll make it through the whole book by the end. Praise God. So pray for me. It's a big undertaking. uh, And hopefully I'll last that long. Amen. Uh, The book of Psalms is a collection of 150 songs and poems written to God. Uh, David penned half of them, roughly. Uh, the rest were written by temple worship leaders like uh, the sons of Asaph, wise men like Solomon, uh, and there's also some that are unknown. Other unknown poets wrote some of the Psalms. Uh, Charles Spurgeon's commentary on the Psalms is called the Treasury of David. Uh, it's if you haven't heard of it, it's perhaps the most prolific and enduring work centered on these ancient songs. Uh, Spurgeon quotes Martin Luther in the beginning of his commentary on Psalm 10, which is what we're dealing with today. So Spurgeon quotes Martin Luther, and this is what he said about it. There is not, in my judgment, a psalm which describes the mind, the manners, the works, the words, the feelings, and the fate of the ungodly with so much propriety, fullness, and light as this psalm. That's Spurgeon quoting Luther in regards to Psalm 10, uh, and specifically the first half of Psalm 10, which is what we're going to be dealing with today. So let's read together, hopefully you're there, Psalm 10, verse 1 through 11, okay? Here we go. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised for the wicked boast of his heart's desire and the greedy man curses and spurns the lord the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him all his thoughts are there is no god his ways prosper at all times your judgments are on high out of his sight as for all his adversaries he snorts at them he says to himself i will not be moved throughout all generations I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Praise God for his word. So we're going to come back to verse 1 and we're going to work through this together verse by verse. Okay, So verse 1 here again, we see, and if you've tracked at all with us through the Psalms, or even if you've read the Psalms on your own, you know that there is uh, this tendency, there's this rhythm where many times uh, in the Psalm, whoever the Psalmist is, they'll be kind of lamenting over the difficulty of life, and they'll be honestly expressing how they feel. Uh, but we we see this pattern that that, that, that is there, uh, but also that In the midst of that, there is a a declaration of belief in God's truth. And so here again, we see verse 1, Psalm 10, an affirmation that it is safe for the children of God to say how things look and feel from their perspective. Right? I think sometimes, I know I've heard people teach as if me being honest with God about how it feels or how it looks from my vantage point is not okay. Clearly, if if that's not okay, then, then I don't think Much of God's people throughout time would have been singing many of these psalms. Clearly, it's okay to say to the Lord, this is what it looks like to me. Uh, I'm struggling. It's difficult. I'm having a hard time. Even so far as, Lord, it seems like you're not here. Uh, When we express these struggles honestly uh, and even ask questions like we see here, this is a pretty direct question, we should be careful to be humble enough to acknowledge that our perception and reality may not line up perfectly. We should also be bold in our confidence that God will answer our inquiries and that he is gracious and patient with us. It's important to have all of that together. The practical question, I think, for us, friends, in reading this first verse is, have have we ever felt this way? Has it ever seemed to us that in times of trouble, God was afar off or he was hiding from us? I think the truth is, for most of us who have followed Jesus for any amount of time, and even for some who have yet to trust him by faith, this, this is a familiar feeling. So when we are faced with this, this, this sense that I'm struggling and it doesn't seem like God is close, it doesn't seem like he's answering my prayers, it doesn't seem like he's near me, uh, what, what do we do, right? How do we deal with that? So first of all, if we ask the question, why do you stand off, O Lord? Why do you, what does it seem like you're hiding yourself? Uh, We need to be willing to seek an answer in humility instead of deciding that the way it seems to us is the only possible reality, right? So it's okay to ask these questions of God, but we have to keep open this understanding that we don't always see everything the way he sees it. Um, The the reality is God does know what fear does to us. It's why so often he commands his people to fear not. You go throughout your Bible, you'll find the most prevalent command that God gives is, is to fear not. He ties that to the fact that he is with us and the fact that he is God. Uh, and, and God knows that what fear does to us. That's why he tells us not to fear. When trouble comes and fear seizes our hearts, our focus often narrows and our vision becomes fixated on the problem, which makes it nearly impossible to see the faithfulness of God. Right? Our, our eyes get so focused on, on what it is we're struggling with, it, it oftentimes makes it easy for us to miss what God's doing or almost impossible to see what he's doing. And this leads to this sense oftentimes that he has abandoned us when we need him most. And I think most people that are honest would say, I've, I've felt that way at some time, like I've cried out to God and, and it felt like that prayer hit the ground or bounced off the ceiling. didn't seem like anyone was answering So I think we need to ask this very important question. If we're going to be honest enough with each other and with God to say, sometimes it feels like he's not close. If we're going to do what the psalmist does here and say, Lord, it seems like you're standing far off when I'm struggling. It doesn't seem like you're here. If we're going to do that, uh, I think we need to ask this question. Has God actually left? It feels that way. It seems that way. But has he left? Does he ever withdraw when we're in trouble? Has he answered this question in his word? Let me read you a couple verses. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3, says this. God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Now, all of that was describing a really scary situation at the back end, but don't miss the first part. God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. God has spoke to the issue. Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. So God has promised to be an ever-present help in time of trouble. He has given us his very name. The strength of his name is a strong tower we can run to and be safe in the midst of difficulty. These verses that I just read you and many others, they give us plain statements regarding... Uh, God's position in times of trouble. And so how do we explain this feeling of distance when we experience difficulty? Because that feeling's still there, right? We've had that experience. For most of us, that's true. Let me read you James 4.8. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded." I've seen the first part of that verse on a lot of bumper stickers and like fridge magnets, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. A lot of times they cut that thing in half. They don't put the cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. That doesn't look so good on the bumper sticker, but it's there for a reason and it actually all goes together. It's very important. So here, what's all of that collectively tell us, right? So Psalm 46 says, God is ever present in trouble. Proverbs 18 says, we can run to the name of the Lord as a strong tower where there is safety. And James 4 tells us if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And so if we take all of that together, these truths lead us to an understanding that if we feel distance or disconnected from him, it is not God who has moved away. It's us. Didn't he say, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you? Didn't he say, my name's a strong tower, you can run to it and be safe? Didn't he say, through the mouth of the psalmist, Psalm 46. I'm going to be an ever-present help in time of trouble. God has made declarations of what his position is in time of need and difficulty for us. He's not running from us. Sometimes, friends, when we let fear seize our hearts, sometimes when we get overwhelmed by the difficulty of the situation, we run away. We go scared. We get all chaotic in our thinking, and, and we move away from where really our help is. And then sometimes we do that, and, and we sense that distance, and, and unfortunately we think, well, God's done it. God's moved far off. He's hiding from me. He's made clear he's not going to do that. I'm really thankful about that. I don't know if that matters to you, but I have difficulty in my life sometimes that I feel is way outside of the realm of possibility for me to handle. Maybe you guys all got it under control. I, I mean, write a book. I'll read it. I promise. I promise. But if you don't, like if you're like me and you know that sometimes you're in over your head, sometimes life throws more at you that you can handle, and you really do need God's help, you need these precious promises, Uh, I think it's important for us to be single-minded, not double-minded. I don't know what double-minded is. That's not really a thing. We can't be double-minded, right? Because sometimes that happens. For a moment, we'll believe those verses. For a moment, we'll stand strong upon what God has said about his proximity to us in the midst of difficulty. But then... We'll kind of run to the other side of that thing and begin to wonder. Well, what if what if this is the one time God's decided not to be faithful? What if what if this is the time, or I've messed up so bad this time that He has withdrawn from me? Um, the truth is, He's not going to do that. I've said all of that, but I also want to come back around full circle and say it's okay to tell God, I feel like you are far away. I'm struggling, and I'm hurting. The Psalms make it clear. If nothing else in the Bible does, I think there are other things in in, in the scriptures that would let us know that God wants us to be honest with him. We don't have to put on a mask with him. It's so tempting to do that with people, and sometimes we just transfer that right over to our relationship with God. And he doesn't want that. He wants us to be honest. He wants us to be able to tell him how we're feeling, what it looks like. But we must also declare what we know to be true. True. And, and this is where praying God's word is so helpful. And so let, let me just give you an example. You could say to God, I, I, Lord, I feel like you're far away. I, I don't feel like you're, I'm hearing you in prayer. I'm struggling and I'm hurting right now. However, this is what Psalm 18.2 says. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Well, that was kind of repetitive. It was, man. But sometimes I need repetition. Don't you? Sometimes I need to hear more than once how good God is, how strong He is, and how committed He is to me and to be with me and to help me. Because sometimes uh, it's tempting. It's tempting to believe other, other things, like how I feel, what it looks like from my perspective, uh, what other people other than the Lord think about it. There's, there's so many influences. And so God is faithful. We can tell him what it looks like. We can tell him that we're struggling. But just like it happens in the Psalms, go throughout, especially when when David's lamenting. It's like, Lord, I'm crying to the degree that my bed's floating. It's really rough. However, my trust is in you, right? And so that pattern is helpful for us in the way we approach the Lord. Uh, Don't be fake with him, but also cling to his promises. I hope that's helpful. It's helpful for me. So that brings us to verses two through four. Uh, It says in pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. These verses right here, they hinge on the second half of verse two, uh, and this is something that elsewhere in the Psalms is a confident assertion, but here it's asked for in prayer. What do I mean? The second half of verse two says this. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Actually, if you go just one Psalm back, the, the, the psalmist there is declaring like, Lord, I know you're gonna do that. When they spread a net out to try to catch somebody else, they're gonna tangle their own feet up in it. Here uh, in, in the second half of verse two, this is a prayer. It's asking God to do this thing. When, when people are are, are Hotly pursuing the afflicted. What does that mean? It means that they're just, they are dogging them all the time. They are looking for opportunity to take over and take advantage of the weak always, right? And they're just, they're just doing evil things. Uh, here this prayer is, Lord, let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. The very vehicles they're trying to use uh, to kind of work evil and wickedness. They're asking, Lord, use that very thing that, that it would be their undoing. Now, one of the ways that God deals with wickedness and pride is described in these verses. Uh, And and this wickedness that's being described here, it's carried out, you'll notice, under the false notion that there is no God. That's important. We're going to talk about that a little more in a second. But what they're doing here is uh, they're calling out for God to let the prideful and wicked be ensnared by the very traps they attempt to set for others. And... uh, You may wonder, like, why would somebody pray that? That seems very specific. It seems almost vengeful. Uh, But we also see this pattern through the Psalms of an understanding of praying for those who are wicked and doing evil, especially oppressing the, the weak and those that are vulnerable. There's this idea. There's this this calling out for God to be glorified in dealing with those people and bringing justice to them. And so, you, and sometimes the psalm does, the psalms do say it that way. They just call for justice, God's justice to be done. But here specifically, it's it's a certain kind of flavor of justice when God, in a very specific way, comes and deals with somebody that's dealing wickedness uh, in the very same way that they were trying to hurt somebody else. And so. There's so many examples of this. Uh, if you're familiar with the story of Esther, right? Uh, Haman ends up hanging on the gallows that he set up for Mordecai. Um, if you, if you go for, move forward to Daniel, right? Daniel in the lion's den. What, what happened there? Well, you got some uh, jealous, evil, wicked, prideful advisors that are close to King Darius, and they don't like Daniel, this Hebrew guy that's getting a lot of favor because he's wise and he handles his business, you know, like, and the king's noticing, and so he's starting to be promoted and uh, so they devise a plan, right? They come up with, with this deal, and, and they get the king to, to say, listen, nobody should be able to pray to you. You're the greatest. You can, tell, you can tell these guys are just master manipulators. They come, first they're in the king's ear. Oh, King Darius, you are the best. Like, really, the best, best. You're so awesome, and you're so awesome that I think everyone should have to worship you. They should only pray to you. And if they pray to anybody else, you know what should happen? They should get thrown in the lion's den. King Darius not being very discerning in that moment. It's like, I, I am awesome. You're right. You guys are right about that. And everyone should pray to me. Yeah, I don't see why that doesn't those don't go together. Yes, let's do it. Let's make it a law. And so they do. Uh, and they knew the whole time what they were doing because they knew Daniel was a man of God with integrity and he was not going to follow that. And so uh, Daniel... Goes to his room to pray, and here they come creeping, just like this psalm talks about. They're they're, around the corner. They're crouched down, hanging outside the window, being shady, and uh, they hear him praying to God. So they go back to the king, and they're like, hey, king, didn't you make this law that everyone needs to pray to you only? Yeah, I made that law. Well, Daniel, we just caught him. He's praying praying to his God. This really vexes the king, because now he's starting to understand what just happened here, that he got hoodwinked as well. Uh, But it is the law. And uh, he, he, he can't reverse it at that moment based on royal edicts of the time and whatever. So the bottom line is Daniel Daniel does get thrown in the lion's den. If you're not familiar with the story, it's pretty amazing. I would commit it to you. It's in the book of Daniel. Go check it out later. But the uh, Bible says they, they throw him down in that lion's den uh, and that the Lord God shut the mouths of the lions. They, they did not touch him. Uh, sometimes you'll see pictures. He's like down there petting them and stuff. I don't know if that really happened, but I do know that the lions did not eat Daniel. Uh, and it says the king stayed up all night. He was totally just vexed in his heart over this thing that it, it had happened. And so he didn't eat, he didn't sleep. Soon as daybreak came, he runs out to the thing, calls down into this cavern. Daniel, did your God preserve you? Daniel calls back up. Yeah, I'm doing good. And that's where it starts to get interesting, this idea of justice being doled out of the very flavor that somebody tried to get somebody else with, because King Darius commands that Daniel be pulled up out of the hole, and then every one of those advisors that had tried to set that thing up, they get brought, they get tossed in the lion's den, and the very same lions that Daniel was hanging out with all night, the Bible says, tore those guys apart before they even hit the ground. Then something very interesting happens, and this gets down to the point of all this, because you might be hearing what I'm saying, like, man, this guy doesn't know how to preach. He's talking about God's justice and, like, you know, judgment, and people don't like that. That's, this, is not do, this guy's not doing good. Hold on a second. Just track with me for just a moment, because here's what happens next, and here's something that we need to, we really should rejoice in. The very next thing that happens is, because of seeing that God had preserved Daniel in the midst of these other people laying this trap, and the, the incredible nature of the fact that sometimes God brings justice upon the wicked in the very same way that they tried to undo someone else. All of this together, it declared so loudly that the God of Daniel was involved in what was going on. That, that King Darius at that moment said, okay, now everybody who's underneath my rule is going to serve and worship the God of Daniel. Now, we know that a king saying, an earthly king saying everyone's going to worship God doesn't mean they really will. However, you can see the impact that that had and how the name of the Lord had to have spread through that land and how that story spread through that land. And ultimately, what did it lead to? This whole interaction where somebody plots against God's people and then they end up being destroyed in the very way they tried to destroy God's people. What happened is God was glorified. And that's part of what this prayer is about. See, this person is... Not even in the midst of them feeling like God is far off. Where are you, Lord? It feels like you're hiding. The wicked seem like they're prospering. They're getting away with everything. Their prayer is, Lord, let them be caught in the very plots they have devised. And they prayed that not because they're just extra vengeful or, or, or you know, these people are mean uh, and, and, and not uh, obeying really the, the thought of having care even for those that do wicked things against you because listen, they're struggling with their own stuff. The bottom line is when God comes and deals with a person like this, when he executes justice like this, bringing upon the person the very thing they try to destroy someone else with, it leaves little doubt that there is a holy just God involved. And uh, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice and wrath. And God's wrath comes out of God's love. God is absolutely wrathful against sin and he's wrathful against wickedness and he brings justice and judgment against both of those things. But the reality is the reason he is wrathful and the reason he brings judgment on those things is part because he's glorious and perfect and he is a just God, but also his justice and his love absolutely work together. God is absolutely against sin in every way, but that's because he is really about this singular vision that he's had ever since before time began, right? The Bible tells us that even the plan of redemption, God knew before the foundations of the earth, God is about one thing, it's us and him forever. Sin gets in the way of that. And so yes, he's wrathful against it. God will come with blazing anger and judgment against sin. He's trying to destroy everything that would try to destroy us. He's trying to destroy everything that would stop us from being close to him, which is what we were created for. And I'm thankful that he does that. God's taking righteous vengeance on the wicked in this way, this specific way of dealing them what they dealt, decimates the foolish idea that there is no God. And it did that in the time of Daniel. Uh, It was pretty obvious when Haman was swinging from the rope that he had set up for Mordecai, there's a God in this land and you shouldn't mess with his people. I hope you see the love of God in that. I hope you understand that his judgment and his love are not contrary, but they're working for the same goal. Praise God. Why can God do that? So I hope you're thinking about it because these are difficult principles. I hope like you're working with it really um, and didn't check out. Why can God make this type of judgment? Why can God bring wrathful vengeance in the very way that somebody tried to hurt his people and it not be wrong when it's wrong, the Bible says it's wrong for us to take vengeance? What's the difference there? It comes absolutely down to the fact that God is perfect and we are not. Our vengeance is, al- if we take vengeance, it's always tainted with our own sinful motives and we can't really trust our judgment in the situation. God is perfect and holy. If he brings judgment and if he brings this specific type of judgment, we can know this to the very degree and measure that he doles out whatever he does, it is right because he's totally perfect and totally holy. So God can do that. And it's really beautiful. It's, there's a, an incredible freedom for us in the fact that God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You don't worry about vengeance. Your job is to love. Your job is to forgive. I'm going to give you the mercy and grace to do that. You don't have to take vengeance. Don't you worry about that. I got that department. That frees us to not have to carry the weight of vengeance and bitterness. And if you ever carried that before, you know what I'm talking about. Anybody else ever been in that club before? I'm not raising my hand to show you how. I'm raising my hand because I was in that club like card-carrying member, probably like on the board. I might have been VP, right, of the, the Bitterness and Vengeance Club. Yes, and it's wretched. It's a miserable way to live. I'm free from that today because I know even if something goes wrong, even if someone just absolutely does me wrong or does wrong to somebody that I love. That's if you want to get, you can do a lot to me and any more because Jesus has changed me. I'm, it doesn't get me riled up real fast, but if you do something to somebody I love, man, I'm going to tell you right now, it still takes the help of the Holy Spirit for me not to go Rambo, right? Like vengeance. It's that, that's the, that's my first sinful tendency. And I'm so thankful today that I'm, I'm, I don't have to follow through with that. And I don't, what, why did I used to do that? Because I would, my thought process would be, if I don't do something about that, they're going to get away with it, right? Has that ever burned you up before that somebody did the wrong thing, and if, if I don't hurt them or I don't get them somehow, that they, they can't get away with this. That, that, we, that whole idea, right, that will cause us to get into some stuff that will only lead to our destruction. God has freed you from that because he will handle it. And, and oftentimes, not only will he handle it, he's going he's to do it in such a way that everyone's going to know he did it. I, I hope you're happy about that. I'm real happy about it because now I don't have to take vengeance. Now I can take a deep breath and I can lay it at the Lord's feet and I can say, Lord, vengeance is yours. You handle it. And what he might do is give grace to that person. And if I'm upset about that, there's something wrong with me and I'm forgetting how much grace I've been given. But if they don't repent, what he might do is bring some judgment upon them. He might pour some justice on them. He might try to melt that, that uh, wax that's around their heart and, and soften them up. Take some of that pride away. And so that's, But that's his business, right? I get to leave that at the Lord's feet. I'm not the arbiter of, of vengeance and justice in the earth. And praise God, because I'd be bad at that job. I've proven I'm bad at that job. Have, have any of you... Do, I'm wondering how real this is for you, this idea that God does this. I know I told you about Daniel, and I told you about Mordecai and Haman, and we've seen it also in the story of Joseph and his brothers, how God, you know, he, he has this, this way of bringing things around to, in, in the exact same way that someone else tried to hurt someone. Have you, I, there, there are so many examples outside of the Bible that I can think of in my life. I don't know if, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but I, I'll just tell you one quickly. Have you ever seen a bully get bullied? Like, you, you know that happens. Like, it happens all the time. I don't know if you've ever been bullied. I was when I was younger. But so many times I've seen bullies get bullied. And one time I know it happened because I was involved. So I, there was this guy. His name was, I'm going to say his last name. His name was Seth. This was in high school, okay? And he had that haircut in the 90s where, like, they shaved their whole head but left their bangs. Remember what I'm talking about? <laughs> I never did that to the glory of God. There's no pictures of that anywhere in existence of me. So anyways, that was Seth. And uh, we were in health class, and we had already butted heads about something. I can't really remember what it was, but we were already not on good terms. And then uh, so I just want to say full, full disclosure right off the bat. The way my granddad raised me that if I saw someone get bullied and I didn't do anything and he found out about it, then he would beat me when I got home. That's not a good parenting model. I'm just telling you what I was working with here. And nothing I did here, I'm going to describe a situation, nothing I did here am I condoning as right or good. It was sinful. However, God does sometimes deal justice in the very way someone else was trying to hurt someone else. So there's, there's this guy named Greg that's also in our class. And we leave health class, and here we go. And those two guys are ahead of me by I don't know ten feet. And and we there was this they built an addition to the school right, and so there was an old part of the school and a new part of the school. And then there was this skinny walkway where there it was maybe three feet wide, and it was like a bridge between the two, like a walk a skywalk thing. And so we get into that thing, and this kid named Greg, I think he was like a mathlete, probably chess club guy, I don't know, like you know whatever, very smart, and, but also couldn't fight his way out of a wet paper sack. And so Seth, with his bangs only, comes up and starts pushing this kid and, like, bouncing him off the wall as they're walking. And he just keeps doing it. And I'm like, I let it go one or two times. Full disclosure, I already didn't like this kid, okay? So I was kind of looking for a reason. But this also helped. And so he's bullying this kid, right? And so I remember what my granddad said, and I remember what happened in health class. I saw his bangs. And I was like, all right. And so I came up behind him and I pushed him so hard. All his books, his binder flew out of his hands. And I was like, come on, dude, push me. Like, if you want to push somebody, push me, leave him alone. And so I kind of tell Greg, go on. And so then he turns around, he comes up and he does that thing that high school kids that aren't, don't really want to fight do. And he gets, puts his chest right on my chest and I just kept telling him, like, come on, hit me, hit me. And so he did, but we were like chest to chest, right? And so the, the, the punch just, I mean, it might have gave me a red mark. I don't know. He's probably a good fighter, but this punch didn't hurt at all, plus adrenaline. So, man, I'm, I swear to you, I took a step back, and I clocked this kid so hard that his cheeks split open immediately, just blood everywhere, and he stumbled all the way to the other end of the skywalk and like crumpled against the wall. And I went over and just stood over him, and I was hoping he would get up. So sinful. This is wrong. Nothing, none of this is right. And I'm just waiting for him. And uh, nothing happened, so I walked away. And that, it was like the, before the last period of class. Here's, here's the funny part. How, how silly bullies are and how sometimes people are so foolish, and the rest of this psalm kind of bears this out, this, this arrogance. <laughs> I guess he went to the nurse's office. Somebody told me the janitor went behind him the whole time, like, mopping up the blood. And So he goes, or he goes to the principal's office, and they bandage him up or whatever. At the end of school, here he comes walking down the hall. I'm like getting my books out of my locker. Doesn't do anything. Doesn't try to fight me. He goes by and he's like, "You better watch your back." And keeps walking. I'm like, "Man, come on, bro! If you're gonna do something, you're gonna do it right now." Like what? A, what a chump. Anyway, a bully got bullied that day, and um, it was sinful for me too. But God does that sometimes, and and I've seen that happen in that situation. Uh, and honestly, I've done some sinful things in my life and seen it come full circle. I've been mean to people before, uh, and I'm sure I've bullied folks and that's probably part of why I suffered what I suffered. So sowing and reaping is a real thing. God does dole out this kind of justice and it's, it takes away some of the, 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 question mark of is, is, is God really involved, right? When the advisors go in the very den, they tried to get, Daniel killed in, when Haman hangs on the gallows he built, like, it, it just puts this stamp upon it, like, it's probably not coincidence, there's a God involved, so, anyways, God bless you, Seth, if you ever listen to this, buddy, I'm sorry about that, all right, um, where are we at now, verses 5 through 11, uh, his ways prosper at all times, your judgments are on high, out of his sight, as for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. I know that's weird. We don't really snort at each other, but it's kind of like that, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not worried about you type attitude. Uh, He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places in the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws them into his net. And he crouches, he bows down and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. There is an interesting and profound observation contained in this psalm. Um, Even though many who are prideful and brazenly wicked carry on their sin and oppression of others, under the false belief that there is no god they can't stop thinking about god let's let's look at it together first look at verse 3 with me for the wicked boasts of his heart's desire and the greedy man curses and spurns the lord verse 4 the wicked in all his the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him all his thoughts are there is no god verse 11 he says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. It's so interesting that over and over, this guy that keeps saying there is no God just can't stop thinking about God. He's cursing God. He's saying, well, God won't see. It's this constant tension and justification that happens in the mind. I, I have seen many times, I don't know if you've ever, if you've interacted or, or been on YouTube, <laughs> but I, I've had one-on-one dialogue with people who claim to be atheists, Who, once they're pressed to the point of frustration, end up revealing more that they hate God than that they don't believe in Him. I just want to be careful to say I'm not saying everyone who claims no belief in God is that way. Uh, There are some who would be careful not to say they hate God because they know it would undermine their premise. Um, There are some who have come to that conclusion that there is no God based on the way they see the evidence that we have available. So, what I'm saying is not always, but many times, not all the time, uh, and I just want to be sure that you understand, I, I don't say what I'm saying as, as a criticism of the intellect of those who don't believe God exists. Let's, let's be honest. There are brilliant people who have come to the unfortunate conclusion that the most reasonable way to understand how all of creation came into being is by random chaos and chance. That there are brilliant people that that's the way they see it. So it's not, I'm not saying every atheist is dumb. I'm not saying every atheist doesn't understand themselves or has no ability to introspection. Those kind of statements, when they're made, make us look unintelligent. I'm just saying many times, and I'm telling you with one-on-one interactions I've had with people, many times it is some tragedy or painful experience that causes a person to say they don't believe in God. This psalmist notices something telling in the psychology of that kind of belief there is a tendency for double mindedness they say there is no god but they curse him they say there is no god but they suppress their conscience with the idea that he will not see their iniquity or demand justice for their sin you see the person in the psalm he's lurking right he's he's hiding he's doing all the things he's cursing god but saying god doesn't exist He's, he's hiding, but from who? Uh, he's saying God doesn't exist, but then he's saying, "Ah, eh, he's never gonna see what I'm doing. Some double-mindedness there. Romans 1 tells us that God's existence and power are evident through what he has made, and that every human being deep down knows that he is real. This is why throughout the psalm we see reference to this, this, these evil people, these wicked people, hiding and they're lurking, and they're crouching. It is only those who have reached the most deadened state of conscience who practice their arrogant, prideful, and wicked acts out in the open for all to see. Do you notice that? Most people that, that hate God and do the acts that go with hating God, most of that stuff's done behind closed doors. It's done in the dark. It's not done out in the open. Uh, Many times those who try to deny God and justify oppressing the poor and the marginalized, they have to spin up lies and justification in order to quiet the deep-seated sense that what they are doing is wrong. That's what, you, you, see the, you see the wrestling in the mind. This psalmist understands the mind of the person trying to deny God and live accordingly. You understand that, right? That, that he keeps saying, uh, you know, he, he's, he's boasting, he's cursing the Lord, but then saying the Lord doesn't exist. And he's saying to himself, well, there is no Lord, so what I'm doing doesn't matter. There is no moral absolute. There is, there is no standard. It's, it's whatever I determine. Yeah, but if there's a God, he won't see what I'm doing. He won't, he's forgotten. He's not paying attention to me. You see the struggle that happens here. And, and the this, this psalmist understands this about the person that's denying God. And this looks all different kinds of ways, but he's keen in the, to this specific set of wicked acts. The, the truth is, not only those who deny God altogether feel that they need to hide often even those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation retain this tendency it is tragic that not only those who invite the wrath of God on themselves with their overt rebellion against him feel that they need to hide or they should hide it's tragic when those who have received grace and mercy through faith in Christ also feel like they need to hide or like they can't walk in the light. I want to read a set of verses to you. Because this this tendency for hiding is more prevalent than we'd probably like to admit or even imagine. And we need to bring light to bear on it. This is 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Some incredible encouragement there in the beginning of the book of 1 John, and it speaks directly to this idea of us feeling like we need to hide. I referenced earlier our tendency for masks to try to hide from God, but we also try to hide from others. It's interesting here that in verse 7 it says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, that being Jesus, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. What am I talking about practically? Why does this matter? I think it's right for us in the midst of seeing what we can see about the condition of the person that is set in their wickedness, that is determined in their rebellion against God, the fact that they feel like they need to hide and crouch and and stay away from God even though they deny he exists and and try to be in the dark as far as what they do. I think we need to acknowledge that even once we receive grace through faith in Christ, even once we have received mercy from Jesus and we are told by the scriptures, by the truth of God, that uh, we have no reason for hiding, we still to some degree, we struggle with that tendency. And sometimes we do walk in darkness instead of walking in light. And so how do we, how do we deal with that? Well, first of all, we got to acknowledge it. We got to say, you know what? Yes, sometimes I am less prone to walk in the light than I should. Sometimes I, I try to hide sins. Sometimes I don't take advantage of the beauty of accountability that God has given us and having fellowship with one another. Did you, did you hear, I read it twice on purpose. One of the results of walking in the light like Jesus does is that we have fellowship with one another. And when, a lot of us when we hear fellowship, we think like, you know, cookies and coffee and small talk, like that's great. Praise God for cookies and coffee and small talk, but fellowship that's being talked about here is like the real deal, authentic type being together in relationship that allows us to walk in the light together, to know each other to the degree that it's very hard for us to hide. That's a precious gift to us. It takes away some of those angles and those hiding places that we use. And I just, I want to give you a practical example of a conversation I had very recently. Uh, somebody reached out to me and they said, hey, uh, I just want to let you know, I, I, I I've, I'm feeling a little bit like I'm slipping as far as my relationship with the Lord. And I just want to say that to you and ask you to pray for me. And I said, well, of course I'll pray for you, but also let's talk, right? (laughs) I don't know if they really thought they were going to get off that easy. but uh, So it it took a couple days. It was life for both of us, and we didn't get to each other. But then I I called, and we talked. And said, okay, so talk to me about what that meant. What what does that look like practically? And uh, this brother was calling me and kind of sounding the alarm because in the midst of an incredibly busy season of life, he had slipped somewhat in, in reading his Bible consistently. He had missed a service or two over the span of a couple months, um, and he hadn't, he hadn't participated a couple times in that season uh, in some of the uh, outreach efforts that he normally does. And so as, as a pastor, I'm sitting here going, well, buddy, if we're grading on a curve of what I'm normally dealing with, this is an A+. Plus. Like, hallelujah, right? But... Here's, here's the key, and here's something I said to him. Like, brother, you, you've got a hold of something here. There's something precious in what you've just done. You understand a principle that is, it's born out here in 1 John 1. The, degree, the sensitivity of his conscience caused him to want to walk in the light at the very hint, the first scent of him being apathetic towards the things of God. And I just want us to be honest. Is that how most of us deal with it? Or do most of us justify, hide, put on a mask, you know, scriggle diggle justify, do whatever we can, right? A lot of times it's not until like our apathy or the, 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 the lack of connection to Jesus or, or even overt sin, it's not until we're about to get caught or there's like really serious circumstances or ramifications or consequences that we're like, hey, uh, I'm messing up and I need help, Right? That's, it's not really walking in the light if like you got drug there, right? That's, that's getting drug in the light. The one John says we can walk in the light. And some of you are like, yeah, but I don't want to tell people my stuff. I mean, okay, but you got to understand there's, there's a self-imposed slavery there and it's going to hurt your life and not help you. The beauty of what is said in one John is that we don't have to live like somebody that is wicked and prideful and determined to rebel against God. They should hide. You understand, right? They, they should creep and they should hide and they should duck down in the corners and they got a reason to because the wrath of God is justly upon them. You, dear friend, if you have put faith in Christ, that, that tendency to hide, that tendency to not feel like you can really tell the truth about who you are and what you're struggling with, that tendency should not be there for us anymore. And for some of you, that looks like, oh, man, I don't want to do that. But what it really looks like, if you see it for what it is, is, is a beautiful freedom. Because I'm going to tell you what, that, that brother that reached out to me, that whatever, if it was Satan or just, his, just, just a result of exhaustion that he was slipping a little bit and feeling some apathy towards the things of God, whatever was going on there, the fact that he's reached out, the fact that he walked in the light at that level, the fact that he got someone else in, into it, knowing about it, praying with him about it, means the chances of that taking him into a place of, of destruction and, and, and difficult consequences is, is reduced greatly, if not completely eliminated. And so my, my, my encouragement to you, friends, is don't walk in darkness. Don't try to hide what you're struggling with. Don't, don't try to be a super Christian that's not honest uh, until you get drug into the light and have to tell the truth. Be introspective, be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit's dealing with you about, and then then do what 1 John says. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that line right there, friends, is why we can walk in the light. Because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins, we know we're not walking around carrying all of our failures and our frailties, right? You are not the the, the sum total of all the ways that you are imperfect. That's not who you are. Your identity is not how you struggle. Your identity is not the sins that beset you. Your identity, who you are, is not the way that you're having a hard time, maybe even right now. That's not who you are. I know you got Satan whispering in your ear, and I know you got society and everyone else telling you your struggle is who you are. And that, that drum is beat all the time. And it makes you want to hide. And it makes you want to stay in darkness. And it makes you not want to bring anybody in because you're afraid they're going to think you're weird, they think you're terrible, or they're not going to want to mess with you anymore. But listen, the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all of our sin. And because he sees us as righteous instead of wretched like we deserve, because of what he's done, we can receive that. And by faith, because of his great mercy and because of his grace, we can actually walk in light. We can enjoy that fellowship with him and with each other that we're created for. We can have help as we walk out this life, and it's so much better when you do it that way because that's the way it was designed. Nobody was made to walk this thing alone. Nobody was made to try to be the super Christian that's all by themselves, that's holding all the weight of their struggle. Jesus will take that. He's given us friends and family in the, in, in the family of God to help carry that. Don't be alone in that. It's interesting. After he says, and the, uh, and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. It's like, that's a very, that's a very happy verse. Thank you. Thank you, John. 1 John 7. And then verse 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So that's what I want to say to you today. If you're sitting here today and somehow you've made it this far and you're like, wow, nothing this guy says applies to me. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe you haven't. Maybe you, maybe, I just, you know, I just know crowd psychology. Maybe you've made it this far and, and you're the person saying, he hasn't said anything that matters to me. Let, let me just, let me just Lay 1 John 8 upon you as an act of love and service. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. There is not one of us, friends. There is no one within the sound of my voice, including me, that doesn't to some degree struggle in this way. We all struggle with the frailty of imperfection and the sin that besets us. And that means every single one of us is tempted to varying degrees to do this thing that the wicked man in Psalm 10 is doing, to hide, to try to juke accountability, to try to stay over here in the shadows, to not let people really know how bad it is. And here's the reality, a lot of times, man, when when, when you do that, you start to spin up this narrative in your mind that totally negates the beautiful verse before that said, the blood of Christ cleanses you from all those sins, right? You start to believe your identity is in your struggle. You start to believe stuff that isn't true. And, and, and you get in that echo chamber and uh, it, it just leads to misery and destruction. And so friends, I'm, I'm calling for you today. I'm asking you to admit there's none of us that doesn't to some degree struggle with the temptation to hide. To not deal with our sins and our struggles in a way that could be described as walking in the light. There's freedom in that. There's beauty in that. And friend, it's not just for you. It doesn't just mean more freedom and a better chance of defeating sin in your life when you walk in the light? When you do that and, you, and you, you walk that example out, it shows other people that it's okay to be honest. It's okay to tell the truth. Wow, that person told me what they're struggling with and I don't hate them and I don't think they're wretched and I actually want to help them. And do you see what that preaches to them? You walking this out, you being somebody that stays in the light, you being somebody that's willing to show your cards to some degree. It, it preaches to the next person. It preaches to the person that you're doing that with. Hey, may, maybe I don't have to hide. Maybe, maybe I could really be honest with one of God's people and they would pray for me instead of reject me. I don't know how many of you in here have dealt with the thought that if I tell the truth, if I'm really honest, if I walk in the light like one John is telling me to, nobody's gonna love me. There's no way people will stick with me if they really know. Please, friend, let me just call that out for what it is. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus shed his blood so that all of us could receive mercy and grace. And if somebody does treat you that way when you tell the truth, it's simply because they don't understand the nature of grace. The only way I could come down on you and, and, and be hateful to you because you're honest with me about how you're struggling is if I somehow forget of how much I've been forgiven. And so when we all walk in the light, when our, our minds are fixed upon the truth of the gospel, right? That's why we have to know both parts of the gospel. The gospel isn't just Jesus loves you and wants you to be in heaven forever. The gospel is Jesus loves you and he proved it by dying on a cross and letting his blood be shed so that he could pay the price for sin. And it wasn't just the sins of the world, it was your sin and it was my sin. Every single one of us is imperfect. That's what the Bible says. That none of us has lived up to the perfection and the holiness of God. And that's why Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't. That's why Jesus died the death that we should have. And that's why he rose from the grave. Thank God there is hope today for all of us Thank God, even though our, we have feet of clay and our struggles are many, there's hope today. We can be open, we can walk in the light. We can trust that Jesus won't reject us when we come to him and be honest. And by the grace of God, we need to pray that the family of God is the same way, that we cultivate a culture where people can be open about the struggle, where they can come and talk about what it is they're going through. And not that we condone, not that we just pat people on the back and say, oh, it's okay, go ahead and keep sinning. We're not going to do that either, but we're going to speak the truth in love, but then we're going to grab each other's hands, man, and we're going to march together. We're going to defeat sin together. We're going to come up out of the darkness, walk in the light, bring glory to God, and help each other. Praise God. May we be a people who are honest with God, but also trust him completely. May we be a people who rejoice in his justice, knowing that all his judgments are right. And may we walk in the light as he is in the light, for our good and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you, God, for what it shows us about human nature. We thank you, Lord, for what it shows us about ourselves. Even as it describes the tendency of the wicked to hide And to crouch, Lord, we know that we still retain some of that. Even though, Lord, we've heard the good news of the gospel, even though we've received grace by faith, we still fight this tendency sometimes to think that we need to hide in the shadows. Lord, I ask you to set us free from that. Lord, I ask you to anoint us as your people, give us the grace and mercy to coax each other out into the light, to be people that speak the truth in love, to not judge each other harshly. Lord, help us. Help us to believe, first of all, that you'll receive us. Some of us are struggling with that. Some of us still can't believe if we were really honest with you that you would receive us. Lord, you've made it clear. You already see into the depths of our hearts. You know all of our brokenness down to the very deepest realms, and you love us, and you call us forth to be yours. I thank you, Lord, first of all, that you'll receive us. I thank you, Lord, that if we confess our sin to you, you're faithful and just to forgive those sins. I thank you, Lord, that every promise that you've given us can be counted upon. So thank you, Lord, first of all, we don't have to fear rejection from you if we come to you in faith, trusting in the finished work of Christ. But I thank you, God, that part of your work of redemption in the earth is also creating for us the ability that if we will walk in the light as you are in the light, we can have real fellowship with one another, that we can encourage one another towards love and good works, that we can be in each other's corner, that we can walk in the light together. I thank you, God, this is not just for our good, but it also does reflect your glory. When we're able to be honest and open, when we talk about the fact that we desperately need your grace. None of us is perfect. Lord, may we realize each day, more so than we did the day before, our incredible need for your grace. We need you, O oh God. I thank you that you've promised that when we call out to you, when we acknowledge our need for you, when humility grips our frame, and we really understand our place, that we are but men, that God, you answer. We trust you, Lord. You've proven yourself faithful. Thank you that you are loving and just, that you are righteous and merciful. We submit all of who we are and what we are to you. We love you, Lord. Thanks for not giving up on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.